you take your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians chapter 2, the passage that Paul read a few moments ago in our service, and just to say a word of thanks to our pastor for allowing me to come before you and to open up the scriptures uh, to you and with you. It's a great joy and delight uh, to be under Pastor Brent's ministry and just thankful for his uh, insight in the word and the joy it is uh, to be a part of this fellowship here together. When he asked me about uh, speaking today, my mind immediately went to Virginia Beach Theological Seminary. I wonder why that would happen. I don't know. But um, on our logo are the words that you have in English here in verse number 16, the opening seven words, holding fast to the word of life. A couple of weeks ago, I uh, spoke to our VBTS board at our annual winter board meeting on these words. And so thinking of over the last 25 years, now moving into 2020, which is hard to believe, I thought it might be good to share with you just a couple of things. Why would this be on our logo at VBTS when we think of these words? Holding fast to the word of life. On May 1st, 2010, we had our first graduate who had graduated from West Point to graduate from VBTS. He was a man that came to Christ while a CEO of a very large company in Denver, Colorado. As Providence would have it, he was led to Christ by my brother-in-law, Matt Olson. And as Matt began to watch this guy's life develop and grow, he says, you know, I think God is calling you to the ministry. And both he and his wife said, yes, we believe that too. And he said, what do you think about selling your business, moving from this comfort life, which was an amazing lifestyle, and go to a place in Virginia Beach and prepare for the ministry? It didn't take any persuasion at all. He and his wife sold, resigned, and moved and came here. He always loved science and now this passion for the Bible. So as he's going through here, God just opened up a number of doors. And uh, he's been teaching in a Christian school and both science and Bible. And he'd keep a, a whole uh, stack of Bibles, as he said. He'd put his hands like this. I was in his office. And this whole stack of Bibles like this, and he'd keep them in a closet in his room because students would come in and talk to him about his passion for the Word of God. And, and so he would pull out one of his Bibles and give, he found it worked to give a student, a high schooler, to give them a Bible of their own from him and underline and a plan to read and then come back and talk with them when they were developing through that plan. It was a, it was a great thing for him. And so God began blessing that ministry as he taught both science and Bible. He taught in a Christian school, but the Christian school was by name only because the last four decades it became a prep school in many ways. And so he was concerned about that. And so as he would encourage people concerning this, he would say, hey, listen, this is Christian education, not just education. Well, as Providence would have it, he, his, the headmaster of the school resigned. And immediately, faculty began trickling into his office privately and directly saying, we think you need to apply for this position. He said, I have no 
administration in Christian school. I ran a company, but that's a lot different than dealing with junior high and senior high and their parents. He says that with a spark in his eye. The short story is he did put his application in, and there was, it was down to two or three individuals who were going to be the headmaster of this school. And so as he thought about what the Lord wanted him to do, he decided to take the best academic science books he had, and he put them under his arm, walked into this august room with the entire board encircling, sat down alone, and he put this stack of books there on the desk of, of science books that he had been teaching. He made a very interesting statement somewhere in the interview. He said, you know, we are producing world-class minds, and they're going to all these Ivy League schools. And I'm glad for that. He said, but here's how I see my life. And he pulled out a Bible, his Bible, and he put it on stack of these academic books. And he said this to the board, we're all interested in education, but my passion is Christian education. Uh, within a few weeks, he was hired. And I say this to you because in texting just yesterday with him, he's in a northern state today, and texting with him, I, I thought it was interesting to me because I, I think it's easy for us to forget why God has called us together as a church. It's easy to get comfortable in the Christian life. It's easy just sort of to maintain and be Christianly, to use John Stott's words, to be Christianly about who we are. We are a church. What does that mean? We are a, an assembly of people who have been called out by God himself, who are marked by the gospel of grace, who are given over to our soter and our kurios, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And we live in the midst of a pagan and self-centered and immoral society, drenched in lust. So when I think of this particular book, I think of a man who is coming to the end of his life, who is sitting in a prison in Rome. Ten years earlier, he had founded a church in Philippi by the grace of God. You can read about it in Acts 16. Ten years earlier, it started with a woman's prayer meeting. Out of that, Lydia comes to Christ. Through that, a jailer comes to Christ. People start to come to Jesus Christ in this city, and a church blossoms. And over those 10 years, he saw amazing things happen with this church. It wasn't that it was the most profound and the greatest and the biggest. We don't even know who the pastor of Philippi is. But what was amazing about this church is what he states here in verse 15. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He says, I want you to be blameless and innocent. Children that look like you belong to God. Without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What words? 
You see, brothers and sisters, I think what happens to Christians and to churches is this, is time and culture dull our spiritual sensitivity if we're not careful. Time and culture cause us to clam up rather than to speak up. Time and culture move us away from the posture of someone who is excited about Jesus Christ because we have been redeemed by his precious blood. We are committed to him alone. And then over time, and our culture begins to influence and dull us. And we do not become, we're no longer sensitive anymore to what we were sensitive 10 years earlier. And so I see the Apostle Paul as he lays out this amazing text, it's 104 verses, and as I've been going through these 104 verses over these, this week and just meditating and thinking, I, I wonder if it's not really a pastoral epistle. I mean, he begins in chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, an apostle? No, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. He wrote four books from prison Two of them, Ephesians and Colossians. He begins, Paul the Apostle. Two of them are pastoral in nature, and he doesn't use the word apostle. Here he uses in Philippians, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. And the other one was to Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So it's a very moving text. It's a very amazing text as I work through it personally. But we have chosen, at least 25 years ago, we had chosen these words. Logan zoes epakontes, holding fast to the word of life. I ask you this question. The question I think that was in Paul's, burning within Paul's heart, was at the end of verse number 15. And I wonder if this is us today when he says, here's our generation, quick crooked and twisted, but I want you to shine like stars in the universe. <laughs> I want you to shine like stars in the universe. And so the question is, is how distinctive are we truly? I mean, how distinctive are we as a fellowship? Over and over, you have second person plurals throughout these hundred and four verses because Paul is writing the church and yet all of them are applicable to us individually not just to the church corporately but to us individually so our culture is crooked it is twisted but yet Paul is telling us that we are to shine as stars in the universe and I love how the New English translation begins verse 16 by holding fast to the word of life the word of life. When I look at this paragraph, verses 12 to 16, in fact, really the paragraph Paul read all the way down to verse 18, I won't have the time to do that. That should not be news to you. But in verse 12 to 16, as I look at these two sentences, I, I love the way your Bible has laid that out. Sentence one is verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. 
of his good pleasure. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who initiated, he who began a good work in you will do what? He will bring it to completion to the day of Jesus Christ. This is upon Paul's heart. This is something that is endemic to his personality, to his, his life message, to his mission, is, as he says in Romans, is that so that people would be able to become obedient to the faith. Obedient to the faith. That's how Romans begins and how it ends in chapter 16. Same words. That the faith would dominate us and we would understand that the faith has context. The, the, the faith has, has principles, privileges, yes, responsibilities absolutely and so I wonder as we think together about being a church that would shine as the stars in the universe he's not saying that we put out there this verse and we write it on a sign he's not saying that you go home and put a sign in your front lawn I am a star But what he is saying is this, the generation that you live in is so crooked and twisted that if you live out what I am saying to you, you will indeed, if God is energizing you, if God is enabling you, you will live in such a way that the world will take note. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Let your light so shine before men. They'll see your good works. What are they going to do? Glorify you? No. They're going to glorify your fathers in heaven. Only God could do this. Only God can do this. Only God builds people. Only God makes people look like himself. Only God builds local churches. Oh, yeah, you can build an organization. We've had enough of that. we got more organizations meeting today than ever. They call themselves ecclesia. Really? An assembly called out by God, marked by the distinctive of the gospel of grace, committed to Jesus Christ, who is our soter as well as our kurios, our Savior and our Lord. And we live in a society, and our society feels very comfortable with us. And we feel very comfortable with them. So Philippians marks us, or should mark us, as this this Jew sits in a Roman prison and writes to a church that was carved out of a group of ladies by the lakeside studying about God. God did something remarkable. As I look at this first sentence, this first sentence has an imperative, and maybe you have it marked in verse 12. Here is the imperative of, verse, of this sentence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Then the second sentence also is dominated by an imperative. And that imperative begins the sentence. And it says in verse number 14, do. Practice, some of your translations will say. In all the things that you do or practice, I want you to do it without grumbling or arguing so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as stars in the universe by holding fast to the word of life. 
so in the day of Christ I can realize my investment in you. That's what he's saying. When I look at this first sentence and this first imperative, to, I, I'm, I'm over, overwhelmed by how he begins with his church. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Oh, I wonder if Paul could say that about us. You always obey. You always want to know what the scripture says, and based upon what the scripture says, you do, you practice. You always obey. I think most commentators, and rightly so, would say that this word obedience really is what he means in the second part of verse 12 with this imperative, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this imperative, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, can be summed up in this, you obey. But you obey not because of your self-discipline. You obey because you understand spiritual life needs the spirit. You can't have spiritual discipline without the spirit. You can have personal discipline, but never spiritual discipline. So the way that we exercise our spiritual discipline and obedience in the word is understand, verse 13, that it is God that is at work in your life. And it covers everything from what you desire to what you do. <laughs> I mean, that's everything. And because God is at work in you, you have to understand that the beauty of the word of life in verse 16, if you've taken, take, some of you have taken the doctrine of scripture with Dr. Daly, you know very well that when the scripture comes alive, this is the mind of God. Just think of the scriptures. The eternal God has eternal thoughts and through the Spirit determines that he's going to write some of those thoughts down through imperfect agents called humans, using imperfect means called language. And through the imperfect agent and through the imperfect means, what comes out is a perfect absolutely pure word of God. Stamp this with one word, miracle. It's a miracle. It's God at work. So how are we going to do all this? Well, by holding fast to the word that produces life. This, this is not a game, brothers and sisters. It's not one book versus all the academic books. <laughs> It's not, it, it's, it's not something where we just sort of wake up in the morning and we, we're, as we're yawning, we open up the scripture, we put our finger down and we're asking for a blessing and we read one verse, Lord, help me as I move on. We can't even remember what we read by lunchtime or did I even read it all? I can't even remember. The significance of this paragraph is powerful to me personally. Work out your salvation. Now, the word salvation is interesting in Pauline theology. As you take the 13 books of Paul, he uses the verb along with the cognates that we get the word to save or salvation or deliver or, or rescue. He uses it 50 times in all of his letters. And usually there's, it has two ideas, two aspects to the word salvation. On the one hand, it means to rescue from your destiny. On the other hand, it means to rescue from your activity. 
So on this side, this is what we love to talk about. I am a Christian. And what does that mean? It means, most people say, I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. It's interesting that one of the strongest statements on the gospel is the first book Paul wrote. It's called Galatians 80:49, And he writes this, and it's about the gospel. Not one time is the word hell ever used. Because the accent is this, that, okay, when there has been a rescue of my destiny, there will be a rescue of my activity. When there's a change in my direction, there's going to be a change in my behavior. So look at chapter 1, if you will, verse number 27. This is the thesis statement of the entire book of Philippians. It's a sentence that has two verses in your ESV, verse 27 28. Only... That word could be highlighted in this way. Now, this is what is important. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or if I remain absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one capital S spirit, in the Holy Spirit, one souled your unity of the body, striving side by side for the faith in the, of the gospel. I remember when the pastor preached on this when he was going through the book of Philippians, and when he read that, it just resonated with me. I'd write that down in my little book, and it just constantly had come back to it. We stand side by side for the faith of the gospel. Arm in arm, we're linked. We're one-souled. We're firm in the Holy Spirit. And verse 28, we're not frightened in anything by our opponents, by the opposition. This is a clear sign to them, the opponents, of their loss, of their destruction, but of your rescue, your salvation. And this sign is from God. So God makes it clear in our world, these destruction, these rescue, this is a sign from God so that you can walk in the world and if both live out, the world's done a great job living out their paganism, are they not? And now if we do a good job living out the gospel, it is so clear which side we're on that it's a sign from God. You want a sign from God? There it is. This is God's sign. And here's God's sign. Those on this side of destruction are looking at themselves and going, wow, there is such a difference on this side. Sometimes that means persecution because he uses the word opposition or opponents, those opposing, those going hard against. So it doesn't mean an easy path at all. I mean, Paul's writing from jail. Why is he in jail? Well, look here, chapter 1, verse number 13. It says, I want you to know that it's serving to advance the gospel, verse 12, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all of the rest that my imprisonment is for, what's the last word? It's for Christ. Everybody in that place knows why Paul is there. It wasn't because of the opponents. It was because of his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And the opponents hated it. 
Say anything you want in a secular society, but pray in Jesus' name, not acceptable. You can curse him in public, and that's okay. Just don't pray in his name. But it's so clear. This side, rescue. This side, destruction. They live out their part. We must live out our part. And when we live out our part, then God is going to reveal to them something about their own need for himself. It's going to make them mad. It's going to also turn other people to Jesus Christ. I say to you, brothers and sisters, when you think of this issue that's before us in Philippians, I mean, Paul is right. Paul doesn't know if he's going to live. I mean, we say, oh, yeah, hang on there, Paul. you got three more years. But Paul does not know if he's going to live. That's why he says, now, whether I'm there or absent, if I'm able to come, I hope to come, but I just don't know. You'll see this throughout the book of Philippians. I, I don't know what God has. It wasn't like he had all this knowledge. He's an apostle, and God is using him as an imperfect agent, using imperfect means, language, to give to us a document that is almost 2,000 years old and very relevant. Which side are you on? Well, just look at your life. <laughs> I love how he did it in another prison epistle. Turn back to Ephesians. Would you do that? We often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I, I love that. But I think it's incomplete without verse 10. So when you look at Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. There it is. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God. And this is important so that there's no pride in the church. Verse 9, so that nobody can boast. But then he gets back to his point. We are his workmanship. I like the new living. We are his masterpiece. Having been created in Christ Jesus. See, this is what happens when you get saved. When you get saved, you're in Christ, and a creation takes place. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. So he takes you from your, your immoral, lust-saturated life and he puts you on this side, he rescues your destiny, and he rescues your activity. And that process of rescuing activity, we call sanctification, not perfection. But in the rescue of all of this, here's what takes place. You're being recreated, reformed. Old things are passing away, and all things are becoming new. It's fantastic. So when you see Ephesians 2, 8, 9, don't stop at verse 9 because what, what, what God is doing with you is you're a master. You say, but I look, I look at myself, I don't look like a masterpiece. Hey, listen, if it's just on looks, I looked this morning in the mirror. I know I'm not a masterpiece. But I will say this to you, brothers and sisters, God does not look like man looks. He looks on the inward. He is seeing Christ, Paul writes, being formed, shaped in you. So that the, what should happen is this, because salvation is growing in our change of activity, the divide between those in destruction and those in salvation gets greater. It doesn't come together. So when I see the world and the church getting closer and closer and closer and closer, wait, wait, wait. This isn't going to work. This is not Pauline theology. This is not the spirit living in a believer and functioning in a local church. 
to make those people who live in a crooked and twisted generation to shine like stars. It's not something we do. It's something God does in us. So the divide gets greater and greater and greater and greater and greater because we're getting more and more and more like Jesus Christ is exciting. It's thrilling. It's painful. It's painful. Uh, by the way, look at chapter 3. Verse 3. And end of verse 3. 3b. How much confidence does Paul have in the flesh? 3b. If my text is right, it says, I have no confidence in the flesh. Do you know that your flesh and my flesh will lie to me? He'll tell me, I'm fine. He'll tell me, I deserve this. He'll tell me, you know, he should not be treating me this way. And she should not be treating me this way. My flesh will give you every single thing you can. Why? Because the flesh is not changed. In my flesh there dwells no good thing. And if Paul writes that after 25 years as an apostle, who am I? See, we, we have all, our flesh will tell us, oh, those people don't care. Oh, the pastor, you know, he doesn't care. Things don't care. People don't care. I think I'll just go, wait a second. The divide is so powerful because God is working in you. That language will never be there. So, as I conclude this message, it's really interesting how Paul answers the question, what does it look like if you're truly obedient? What does it look like if you... And I'm speaking to me. I said, what does it look like if God is working in you, dealing with your desires and dealing with your actions? What does that look like? All right, sentence number two, imperative number two. Do practice reading Grudem's Systematic Theology five hours a day. That's what it says. Oh, man, that's a great Christian. Oh, go get your MDiv at VBTS. I like that one. But it's not there. You see, we can think of all things. What, what, would, a, what would an obedient Christian look like? Man, we would come up with a list. This is what they would be doing. Boy, we, we, got, we got it down. Here's what Paul says it looks like. And does it ever grab each of us? All right? Here's what it looks like. You'll do everything. By the way, everything, a donut with all the edges knocked off. Do everything. Everything. I mean, go as far as you want. Anything without grumbling and disputing or arguing. You see, if God, if you really believe the theology of verse 12 and 13, then you're going to understand how to practice verse 14, 15, and 16. The theology of Paul in verse 12 and 13 is this. God is working in you. And everybody stands up and says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's not me, it's God. And you walk out here and the moment somebody cuts you off on the interstate, wow. Or that you would say something about someone else? Did you see what she was wearing? Or the moment things don't go as you anticipate in your flesh, 
God working in you? We totally forgot that theology. And we're grumbling, and we're arguing, and we're complaining, and we are causing the divide between those in destruction and those in salvation to get closer and closer. That's what the world does. I didn't get my way. Okay. Okay. I wonder if God has anything to do with that. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. You ever heard somebody talk in an unkind way about somebody who's a member of your local assembly? Do you hear people in the office talk in unkind ways about each other? Well, that's, I mean, they're pagans. It's the best they can do. But you? Really? Me? Really? And what I love is what he does in verse 15 is he takes two Old Testament texts, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and Daniel 12, 3, and he puts them together in his own way. His mind is constantly meditating on the scriptures. And so he puts it together. So if you have a chance to read just the first six verses of Deuteronomy 32, read it through because this is where these words come from in verse number 15 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. However, those words were initially spoken about the children of Israel who saw the Red Sea part, who saw manna come from heaven, who saw incredible miracles. And Moses writes a song as he ends his career as the leader, as that theocratic leader of Israel, and the song includes all of these things. The only bad part is it was all about Israel. In fact, it says in that psalm, in the first six verses, you are not my children. Here, we are children of God. Back there in 32, you're full of blame. Here, blameless. Back there, you're not innocent. Here, you're innocent. Back here, without blemish, oh, Blemish, without blemish, yeah. Everything that's stated in those opening verses about Israel, he takes over and says, this is our generation. But we are different. We're different because God is at work in us so that we can shine like lights in the world by holding fast to the word of God. Brothers and sisters, you want to know why it's important that we take minds that are going to be future pastors and missionaries and Christian leaders and good teachers in local churches. You know why we need to sequester them for a while and, and talk for a little bit? It's because it's only by holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast. There's, fast is an interesting word. It could be relate to velocity. You're really fast. Or here, it relates to security. It's, a, it's an amazing English word. Holding fast to the word of God, not letting it go. It's interesting, um, epeko, this word, this uh, is participle, epekontes, this word is only found one other time and by Paul. So I want you to turn real quickly, if you will, to 1 Timothy. This is the only time it's found, and I like the way it's translated in your ESV. Look at chapter 1 Timothy chapter 4, and look at verse number 16. They use four words for this one verb in the ESV. Chapter 4, verse 16. 
Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch. There it is, Epeko. The only time it's found in your New Testament, twice by Paul. So keep that in mind. Keep a close watch. Go back now to Philippians. Keep that in mind as you look at verse number 16. So we are to keep a close watch on the word of life. The word, the only word that can produce life. The only word that is living in and of itself. We heard this not too long ago about chapter 4 in Hebrews. The word of God is living. We heard that. Remember? Yes. It's living. It's alive. It's discerning. And so we, we sequester these people for a little bit of time, but it's hard. People don't want to be sequestered for the word of life. There's so many other things we can be doing. The word of life, holding fast to this. So what's going to happen is if people will leave this place and shine as stars in the universe, what happens in our neighborhood? What happens in our place of business? What happens in our family? What happens in our high school? What happens in our college? If we're shining as stars in the universe, what happens? So there you have it. It's a message that as I go over and over, this morning is so interesting to me that you were highlighting Wesley. We were actually, can you believe it, texting this morning back and forth? I mean, it's, it's so amazing to me. I was talking to him about this here. I mean, why are you there? Most of your students are Muslim. They don't have an appreciation for Jesus Christ. Why are you there? Question, back to me. Why are you here? <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Let me ask you three questions. Question number one, is obedience your pattern of life? Just stop and think. If somebody could give a testimonial of you that lives next door to you as a neighbor, they might not have to say it in the words, but what they say, that guy goes, that girl, they, they, they go after Jesus. Kind of weird, but they go after Jesus. Is obedience your pattern of life? It says here, you always obey. That's what it says. Your pattern of life. That's not perfection, but it's a trajectory. It's a direction. So is obedience your pattern of life? Question number two. Are you a complainer when you don't get your way? Is that, is that profound? It's so simple. You know, when we're really going through the text of Scripture, especially going through Philippians, I've got to spend more time on my knees asking for forgiveness? I've got to study this text. Then the real question to me behind all of this is, is this, because the divide is, can't quite distinguish between those in destruction and those in salvation. I wonder if it's because... We, we have an intellectual understanding of salvation, but we've never had a heart direction change. It's very important. Are you saved? I mean, truly saved. Saved. 
You've been rescued. I'm so grateful that I'll be able to share this with you. But I trust that you'll think about these words by holding fast, keeping careful watch on the word of life. Hold on to it, my brothers and sisters. May it be everything to you. Because if it's not everything to you, it probably is nothing to you.